Welcome to the Still Figuring It Out podcast. My name is Kyle Sigmund and I am your host and I'm still just figuring it out. But I'm really excited to share with you a conversation that I had with Jason McKinney. Jason is from Nashville, Tennessee, and he is a professor. He is a singer-songwriter, a musician, a performer. He is uh, he is a teacher of philosophy and music and business, and he is also an author of the book called Deconstructing a Disciple's Doubt. I'm excited to share this conversation with you because this is the exact type of conversation I love having. As someone who's still trying to figure it out, I love finding people who are not afraid to wrestle with some of the deeper questions of life and to really struggle and to doubt and to continue to search and 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 find and toss out and bounce around new ideas and and this book and this conversation brought so much life to me, and I hope that it does to you as well. So without further ado, this is the conversation that I had with Jason. I hope that this is just a teaser for you, that you will want to get this book. Uh, is full of some really great um, questions, but also some good quotes and ideas that you may not be familiar with. Uh, that can be really helpful and grounding on our own uh, journey of discovery and doubt and faith and belief and discipleship and all of those things. It's a really good tool, and he is so uh, open and honest and vulnerable about his own journey, and that is for uh, uh, the benefit of all of us who are willing to check out his work. So here is our conversation with Jason. Right. Well, uh, Jason, thank you so much for being willing to, to chat with me. Um, so we, we met at a music festival that was also a fundraiser for uh, Casting Bread Food Pantry. And it was it was really refreshing to, to meet you because not only could we really connect as, as musicians and singer-songwriters, but also um, on philosophy and yeah. asking a lot of these, these deep questions that um, I don't know. I don't think I meet a whole lot of people that are as into these deep questions um, as as I am, and and it, and and you are like the more wiser, well-read <laughs> version oh. of me. I think um, so. Yeah, and, and so you also teach philosophy. I do. Where? Well, uh, I teach at several different schools. It's it's one of the the classes that I adjunct. It, it's based on my book, so it's philosophy, religion for the contemporary mindset, which is a mouthful. But um, but yeah, I teach it at several different universities. It's a master's level course, um, and so but I teach at different. I teach at like Belmont, and I've done doctoral dissertation stuff at Treveca. I've taught at Visible Music College in Memphis before. Um, I teach at several universities, um, and then I do like some consulting for some county educational systems here like you know state you know state ran stuff so and tour and all that stuff so right that's that's great so you so you are active as a musician and as a philosophy teacher like so when people when you first meet people and they're like so what do you do i mean how do you begin to to describe <laughs> well that's tough because like i also teach one of the, i don't just teach philosophy i also teach music business and so 
So like at Belmont, I teach music business. So I just say I do a lot of things because between writing and recording and teaching and, you know, writing books and then putting out records and I, I love it. it. You know, as a musician, as you know, there's always this like when people say I want to be a musician, you know, it's like, well, you're probably envisioning having one gig and that's probably not going to happen for you. <laughs> What's going to happen is you're going to you're going to get to do music or be creative, but you're going to have several gigs that you're going to have to piece together this living. And it's not like a piece together this living like I'm barely making it, but it is a piece together living like I couldn't survive off any one thing. But putting them together, I do pretty well. And I've done pretty well for 20 years. So, you know, I always say this and, and not to go off on a tangent already, but when people say music is one of the few careers where people like if you say I've been doing music for 20 years, but if they, you're not a household name, people will say, oh, just hang in there. You'll make it. And I'm like, wait, I got a house and I put my kids through school. Like if I were a plumber, you'd say you have a great plumbing business or an accountant. But because I'm not a household name and music like, oh, hang in there, buddy. It's like, no, I'm, I'm fine. I got a, I got a retirement plan too. I'm doing, I'm doing, I'm doing as well as you, I'm doing fine. So it's, it's interesting people's perception of what it means to be a musician. And then the reality is, you know, most of my friends, like I'm really good friends with the bass player for Lori Morgan, who knows who that is, but I know he's got a really nice house and he does really well and he's raised his kids. Great. And you know what I'm saying? Like it, so it's just this weird perception that people have. So when people ask me that, I tend to say, you know, I'm bivocational. I do several things all surrounding the creative, you know, creativity. Yeah, yeah, that that that's great. And actually, I, I think that's a, a good point that um, you don't have to be famous to make a living, right? Like, you can, um, and and what I love is that you can focus on doing what you love and make a living. And and I mean, that's making it in my book. You know, like. Right. If you can, if you can do what you love and have what you need, like what else is there? Right. I mean, that's, right. that's awesome. Yeah. Well, I, I'm really, um, I've, I've been reading your book and I'm really enjoying it. Um, Deconstructing a disciple's doubt. Um, is, is this your first book? It is. Yeah. Uh, unless you count my dissertation, which nobody reads, but <laughs> uh, that's just some, you know, in case you need help, help falling asleep, that's what I always hear. People always say that about their dissertations, right? Um, it's awful. A buddy of mine told me, said, not even your own mother wants to read this. Trust me. <laughs> That's pretty sad, right? <laughs> I was like, oh, just give me the cliff notes, right? Right. Well, so so what led to you wanting to, to write this? Uh, several things. One, um, my own doubts, I mean, through the years. I mean, uh, I definitely consider myself uh, a Christian and an Orthodox, little O Orthodox. Although I have a great admiration for big O, as you can probably tell in the book, but I'm technically little O. And if that gets too nerdy for some people, just ignore that. But those who are into that nerdy stuff, you'll know the difference. Uh, but it's not been without its perils and its, you know, swings back and forth. And, uh, you know, I never, the whole like, we well, just got to believe and trust just never did enough for me. It just didn't do enough. So I had to go searching out those answers and uh, over a long period of time and coming up with a lot of answers and also coming up with being able to rest in that which I'll never know, which I think is something our culture does not do very well in or Western culture in general, just like, hey, there's paradox. There's things that aren't going to make sense. They're just not. So that was one motivation. And then the second motivation was just sort of seeing um, young people, whether I'm playing shows for 
or teaching in college completely deconstruct and go from a, any sort of belief in some sort of faith to a completely atheist viewpoint. And, and it wasn't just that they would deconstruct to those viewpoints. It's just the antagonism that, that they came with. And I was like, wait a second, like these are both Obviously, it's a binary option at the end of the day. There either is a God or there's not. But they're both, given where humans are, it's reasonable that somebody would come to either conclusion. Where both sides sort of act like the other side is just idiots. And it's like that, that, that's a little reductionist to me. I can see how people would come to either conclusion. So I wanted to help in that. I wanted to help people like, you know, walk through their deconstruction, their reconstruction, and, and just most people don't even understand why they're doing it or why it's happening to them. And, and there's general, like, there's kind of three main reasons. There's one that um, you're just having sort of intellectual issues. That's the first reason, uh, or you're just kind of coming into your own because so much of us that grew up, uh, you know, in any sort of faith background, it was handed to us here, believe this, you know? And then when you start to question, you're like, I don't know if that makes sense. What grandma, I love grandma, but I'm not sure what grandma said makes sense. There's that. And then the second is, and it really is, there's just some sin that you want to justify. There's just something you just want to do that you just don't want to be held accountable for. And then the third thing, and I think this happens more than, especially the church gives it credit for, the church has hurt people. And when the church has hurt people, they will find any sort of other justification to be like, nope, not going there, not doing that. Um, And so I think it comes from one of those three areas, but in either way it comes from, you can't stay there. You have to reconstruct some sort of a cogent worldview. And, you know, I, I just wanted to help people in that. I have a desire to help. Um, whether I do or not is up for debate, but that's the desire. Yeah, no, I, I man, I, I can so relate to that desire. As a matter of fact, one of um, a, a group that I used to, to, to co-lead with a friend of mine who's an atheist, the whole point of that group was just to allow a safe place to, to talk about our, our perspectives and opinions. and one of the first things I realized right away is a lot of the, the people who were part of that group who, who said they were atheist, as soon as I asked them about their experience, all of this pain just started mm-hmm. pouring out. And, and I realized right away that these people just need a place to process the, the hurt that the church has done. Right. And, and, and that is a shame. And, and, um, but also um, people do need those safe places to, to deconstruct, to, to talk through these things. Um, and I love what you said about little O orthodoxy. It reminds me of uh, what Brian McLaren says, talks about as a, a generous orthodox. Yeah. 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 You know, you, you, you can be, you can be generous in what you believe you can, you can make room. Um, right. And, and, and your, your focus on, on doubt in this book is something that really stood out to me right away. Um, so I just, you know, so many people are, are told from a young age to, it's almost like, especially if you're grown up in a, in a religious upbringing, that, that doubt is bad, right? And that it's the opposite right. of faith and that you can't have doubt. But, it, but you really say we should embrace doubt, that doubt is actually a, a helpful thing. Um, so, yeah, why, why would you say that we, we all need a, a healthy dose of doubt? Well, I think doubt is required for faith. Um, and I quote one of my friends who, who's a great author himself, um, and we've grown up together, uh, but uh, Justin Patton, he says certainty is a hell of a drug. Uh, and you really can't have certainty because if you think about it, even one of the things I talk about in uh, like, oh, I talk about like, you know, Richard Dawkins saying, we know we're alone in the universe. 
And whether you're talking about angels or God or aliens, it's like, what do you mean by no? Like we, we've been to the moon and we got some telescopes out there. We can't know that. We can think that. We can hypothesize that. And that may be very reasonable for us to think, but we don't, we don't know it. So having some doubt about that is a good thing. I mean, it's like, hey, I'm going to say that's a reasonable thing to believe. I, 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 can, I can go with that for now, but I'm not going to lock in and be like, we know that when so much of the data is still out there. So I think doubt is needed for faith. And I also think there's like really good cases biblically. You think about John the Baptist, okay? In the Bible narrative, John the Baptist was the first human to recognize Jesus's deity in the womb. They were cousins. John was a prophet. He grew up at least knowing about Jesus. We don't know, but probably seeing him in like, you know, family gatherings or whatever. And yet when he got thrown in jail, he sent one of his disciples to go like, ask Jesus, basically I'm paraphrasing here, but like, hey man, really? <laughs> uh, I just wanna make sure, cause I'm about to get my head chopped off. So if this isn't the thing, can you confirm that for me? And it's like, if that guy can still have doubt, and then Jesus had compassion on that and basically just said, go back and remind him of all the things I've done. Well, he didn't condemn the doubt. He said, I get it. You're facing life and death. There's a time to have doubt. So I don't think, you know, I don't think doubt is a bad thing. I mean, if you're riddled with doubt to the point where you can't believe anything or, you know, then, then yes, you can't stay there. But I don't think doubt is the opposite of faith. That's the biggest thing is that doubt isn't the opposite of faith. It is certainty is the opposite of faith. Yeah, I, I, I can't agree more. That's uh, certainty keeps you stuck, right? Like if you know, if you have the answers, why keep questioning? Why have any type of curiosity at all? And but that that just stunts your your growth, you know, and, and it keeps you from from asking more questions for learning anything else. Um, so, yeah, I like one of, one of the quotes that you wrote in your, your book um, was to, to stay on the sunnier side of doubt. Mm -hmm. um, so what, what, is, what does that mean? Well, I believe that's Lord Alfred Tennyson, correct? I said that. I think I quoted him. Yeah. yeah. Uh, basically saying that uh, there, in, implicit in doubt, there's this wonder, right? This wonder. Now you can, you can like also, you know, and I'm, a, I'm an Enneagram 5, so, you know, there's always the opposite side of things. And so there's also that like an open mind is like an open mouth. It's meant to be closed upon something. So I don't think you can doubt everything all the time. You have to close upon some things and open back up and close. And you can't be like, I'm going to doubt everything. You can't Descartes your whole life. You know what I'm saying like, otherwise you just can't function. But I think the sunnier side of doubt is just resting in the wonder of it all. And that you don't know, you know, and and I think it's a little bit conceited of humans to think. So whether you're a person of faith or you're a person of quote unquote science, um, it, it's, it's odd to me that we always think wherever we're living now, now we've got it figured out. And those people 200 years ago were idiots, you know, and as if 200 years from now, people won't look back and be like, how did they believe that those morons, like they're going to do the same thing to us that we're doing now. So the hubris of humanity to think now we've got it all figured out. Now we know, now we know how to interpret the Bible. Now we know science. And if people say like, no science is reality. It's like, okay, well, you know, when we were kids and I know I'm older than you, but we were kids, uh, dinosaurs did not, they definitely did not have feathers that, that could not possibly have feathers. 
And now we've made discoveries that some of them at least had feathers. They were more bird-like than they were. And so now the science has changed. But if you would have brought that up when you were kids, people were like, oh, we know that they don't, you idiot. Like, you know, so literally that's how, that's one of the things I have a problem with people say, trust the science and don't read too, don't, don't read more into, the, I'm vaccinated. Don't read into that more than what it says. But literally science advances by some group of scientists not trusting the science. That's how it advances. They go, wait, that doesn't seem right. We're going to go over here and experiment because we think that science probably isn't correct. So there's like normative science and then there's paradigm science and paradigm sh science shifts everything. And we, we've had those throughout the years. I mean, you think about it was con considered scientific fact that the earth is flat until it wasn't, you know? So literally science advances by that. And although scripture is fixed, and I'm not talking like progressive, people use the term progressive revelation. I don't believe in that because it's been revealed, but there can be progressive understanding. There can be progressive interpretation, which I think we've had over the years. I mean, I think that has happened in church history. So either way for us to feel like we've got it all figured out now is pretty conceited. It's pretty cocky. So yeah, totally, totally. And, and, you know, when I, when I think back to our history, of these, these paradigm shifting discoveries, um, often it was, and even, even the church, the religious leaders that were saying, you got to take that back. You know, <laughs> like right. we're, we're actually going to like kill this guy if he doesn't say, uh, no, actually I take that back, you know, right. <laughs> but, but it, but it was true and it was real. And, and so, um, so yeah, and I'm, I'm struck by, there is almost like this collective fear of doubt and and i don't know if that's because we're just we're comfortable in what we know or what we think we know um but i i, I like what you're saying about the sunnier side of doubt because it's it's not just being a cynic of everything right but it is staying curious and staying open and that's that's much more of a, a of a generous way to, right. to live your life and, and and it's humble it's humility right to, to continue to um but there has to be a balance and i think that's one of the things that is really tough to find is the balance between um that questioning and then trusting one's knowing right yeah and, and like i said we we can't doubt all of our worldview all at once all the time we have to have you know and that's why i go through this thing particularly when i lecture through of like I had this sort of graph, this equation of like indoctrination. So like your initial worldview is constructed for you. It's handed to you. And people talk about all the time, like I'm getting rid of religion because it indoctrinated me. It's like, well, you are indoctrinated, whether you're raised by an atheist or a Christian who if you were raised by human beings, they indoctrinated you into look at the world a certain way. Your your schools did that. Your churches did that. Your your atheist scientific professor parents did that like that's and that's not bad all it is is the people who are over you handing you their best estimated estimation of how life should be right that's all they're doing they're doing it normally under normal circumstances out of the goodness of their of themselves but we talk about in faith circles we want people to own their own faith well to do that we're asking them to deconstruct even if they return right back to what we have told them, we're asking them to question it, put it back on the table and decide for yourself if this is what you. So there's all these indoctrinations. And so I talk about like how you can have an indoctrination, which is your original, and then you can start to doubt that. So I, I talk about Hegel's dialectic. So there's a, a thesis, 
a way you view the world. And then there's antithesis, either a thought, opinion, an experience that comes along and rubs against that. And at that moment, once that happens, you can never return to your original worldview as it originally was. You're either going to deconstruct from it, at least in that instance, not the whole worldview, but that instance, and go to something different. Or if you reconstruct it, it's going to be more robust and even stronger than before. And so I look at that and think, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to search to discover the truth and this indoctrination, I'm going to question, but I don't question everything all at once because you can't do that. You can't function that way. But these indoctrinations, people, and I love when people say, well, I'm not indoctrinated. And there's a simple, and I use this in the book, stupid way to do that. Like, okay, is there a certain way the toilet paper goes? Has you and your wife ever been in an argument about how you roll the toothpaste? Or do you put the ketchup bottle upside down? And like, those are small, silly examples. But, and you're like, no, of course you wouldn't do that. That would be stupid to do that. She's like, yes, you do. That's the way you do. Those are, you're indoctrinated. Like we're all indoctrinated. And I say this, you cannot avoid being indoctrinated. You can only choose what you're indoctrinated by. Mm. Yeah, I, I love that. I, that was even on my list of, of words. Oh, to sorry. Bring up. No, it's great. I'm glad I'm glad you took us there because that is such a, uh, you know, when I when I was telling people I was going to go to seminary, they're like, oh, you're just going to be all indoctrinated, you know, um, as if that's a bad thing. Right. But it's really it's about it's about orienting um and learning learning from from a tradition of thought and but but really you also are becoming aware of well, how was i already indoctrinated what yeah right. what was i what what did i think before do i still think that now that i have new information am i going to accept this how does that you know balance or par be paradoxical with what i already think um and that's yeah i, I, I love and what I was going to say, and what most people's worldview ends up looking like is like you have instances of indoctrination that construct the whole worldview. You have like indoctrination A, where you've always kept the original. You have indoctrination B, where you've reconstructed and then constructed new. You have C, where you've, reconstru you've deconstructed and then reconstructed back to the original, but it's more robust. And it's this, you end up being these different, you know what I'm saying, like these different things. And they're not all the same importance. Obviously, indoctrinating the way you roll the toothpaste isn't as important as the way you orient politics or religion but but they're all a part of your worldview and we all kind of end up with this hodgepodge of original worldview with you know deconstructions and reconstructions and you know and so that's kind of how we end up with a worldview that is different than our parents and our grandparents to some measure Right, right. Yeah. And I, I appreciate you put in early on in the book, a disclaimer that, you know, all, all of these questions that you were posing in your, in your life, throughout your life, it wasn't like you went through all of this all at once. Right. You know, it was kind of pieces of the puzzle at a time. And, and, um, and really that's, that's, that's a, probably a gift, you know, that that's how it was in your life. Because I, I have a friend who, um, when he describes his, his journey, um, he likens it to, uh, you know, you, you have a house and it, it's falling apart. It's in shambles. It, it needs to, to be reconstructed. So you, you, you know, typically you knock out one wall and then you fix that wall. Um, and then you maybe knock out the next wall and, and then you fix that wall. But he was like, the way it was for me was I took out all four walls. And so the whole oh, wow. time, the whole time he was trying to work through this, he's like, I was just getting rained on. And, and I think that's a really uh, powerful image of, you know, it, it's true. If, if, if somehow you you try to 
to literally question everything all at once and and take a, take away all four walls you know there's nothing protecting you from from anything there's no you can't trust what's right in front of your face right and so um i guess you know that kind of brings me back to this this definition of faith you know so if, if faith is not certainty uh but it's not doubt how would you right. describe how would you describe faith um i think faith is a rested assurance that given all the information available to me right now there is enough for me to believe that this is most likely the truth and to stake my life on it. Now, that doesn't mean it will never come up for questioning again. It just means right now, today, I'm going to act as if this is the case because I feel like I've reached a point. And that can be, you can reach the point through information or you can reach the point through experience. You know, there are some things that you just, you have to experience to know. Uh, but whatever led you there, whether it's experience or it's data, you can say, I'm going to, I can, I can safely operate as if this is the case. I like that. So, so yeah, so it, it is, it is basically placing a trust in something, right? Yes, like, absolutely. At some point you have to put your foot forward knowing that there's some solid ground there or you're just, yeah, you're just kind of stuck. Yeah, I mean, Descartes did the whole thing where he doubted everything, but people forget the like, well, Descartes did that, but he didn't stay there. <laughs> and, and what's interesting about Descartes is he actually ends up with a pretty similar worldview that he started with. Hmm. And but he just he started back at the beginning. And of course, the one thing he said is, you know, it, people say, uh, you know, I think therefore I am, which is kind of a misquote, but he he basically said, I'm a thinking thing and because I keep having these thoughts. I can't rid myself of myself. Therefore, there must be something because I'm here. And so, um, yeah, which I was just watching Westworld and it kind of addressed that, uh, that season four. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that, yeah. Descartes is a, is a classic example of that, right? Like he, he boils it down to, well, there's only one thing I can know and that's that I'm thinking right now. Yeah. Right. And, but then he goes on to rebuild a whole worldview and he just starts taking one thing back at a time and rebuilds the whole thing. Yeah, and that that part probably does get lost, uh, especially in popular culture when we think about yeah. about that. Yeah, thank, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, well, okay, so my next word to define here is disciple. So I think mm -hmm. most people only know that word because of a religious context, at least that's, that's kind of my um, experience. Um, but would you say that everyone is in some way a disciple of, of something? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, we have these different sort of levels of things. We would call it in the marketing world, a disciples like a brand champion. You know, it's like they're they're not just using the product. They're going out and telling everyone this is the greatest product ever. You have to use this, you know, you whatever it is, you know, um, and a, we're all disciples of multiple things, you know, and I, I use the example often like I love basketball. I love it. I'll watch middle school girls basketball. I don't care. I will watch anything. Uh, but like, I'm a fan of the NBA. I'm like an engaged follower of like Butler University basketball. But like my son's games, I'm a disciple. I'm going to every game. I'm losing my voice going horse. I'm telling everybody else how great he is. I'm taking video. I'm doing the, you know, I'm, I'm invested. I'm putting 
my money, my time, my reputation on the line for it. And so we are all disciples of something. So I would say going back to Richard Dawkins, you know, he's a world famous atheist. He's written books on atheism. He's written books on he's a disciple of atheism. That's what he's staking his life on. And he's willing to tell other people about it and tell them this is the truth and recruit people. And he's willing to die on that hill. You know, uh, there are things I'm not willing to die on that hill. You know, I think, you know, in the South that um, when we go to Texas, I think that In-N-Out Burger is much better than Whataburger. But if somebody holds me at gunpoint and says, you have to say Whataburger is better, I'm just going to say, you're right, because I don't want to get shot over that. The burger's not worth it. But if somebody shows up at my house and says, you know, I'm going to kill your son if you don't say something, you know, then that's a different story. Like, I'm going to protect him. So discipleship is something that we hold as immovable our allegiance to. It is an immovable allegiance. Yeah, wow. Um, yeah, that that's, that, and that, so yeah, we, we all have something we follow, something that we are, are willing to, to stake our life on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, how, I, I love that. I, I, so I haven't gotten to the end of your book yet, but I've already kind of looked at the head and the table of contents, but you, one of the, I think it's one of your last chapters really focuses on experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, so I'm, I am actually ordained in the United Methodist church. And so, you know, John Wesley being one of the, you know, the, the main founder of the Methodist church is kind of attributed as t- talking about the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Well, he didn't really yeah. make this up, but it was, um, it was part of how he figured out what he knew, believed, put his faith in. And that was, um, scripture, but also tradition, meaning, like how we've, how things have been understood in the past and learning from that, both the positive and the good. Um, and then reason, you know, we, we do have a brain where we are right. allowed to use it. And I think that goes back to, you know, it, it's okay to have these, these doubts and questions and all of this. Um, and then lastly, this uh, experience. So, mm-hmm. you know, and I think experience sometimes is, is mistrusted because people will say, Oh, well, you know, you just were tired. You were just hungry, you know, you, you know, whatever, like, uh, that didn't really happen. You were mistaken. Like, right. And, and sometimes that, that makes us think, well, can we not actually trust our brains? Can we not actually trust what I'm feeling? Um, so yeah, how does, can we, can we fully trust our experiences? Well, that goes into, I, I don't know if you've got to the point where I have this little sort of diamond of truth and, the answer to that is no, <laughs> but we shouldn't completely dismiss our experience either because when our experience can be lined up with the objective world and or can be lined up with divine revelation or what I call intersubjectivity between two humans, like, did you see that? Yeah, I saw it. Well, we both saw that. Then maybe that was the thing. Like maybe that, you know what I'm saying? So we can't trust our experience completely, but we can't dismiss it completely either. And we're also like, so I use that and I tell kind of three stories in the book. One is about some church hurt that I experienced uh, that I didn't deserve. Uh, And then another is kind of about my salvation experience where I actually experienced some supernatural stuff. Uh, And I'm not that guy. I'm a five on the Enneagram. I'm very intellectual. I am very quick to dismiss. Like, I always hate when people are like, 
you know, my charismatic friends who I love and they're, they're awesome, but they're like, you know what? The Lord told me to go to Taco Bell. And I was like, awesome. Was there like some homeless guy there? Did you buy him a meal or did he's like, nope. Was there a girl? And my wife had an experience I'll tell you about in a second where there actually was something like that. It's like, or was there somebody there who was crying and they just found out, you know, nope. I just got my steak and cheese burrito and I left. It's like, Okay, man. Well, maybe your stomach just, maybe you just want a Taco Bell and you're not wanting to admit it. Like, I mean, it's okay, man. It's all right. You just want a Taco Bell. Um, but at the same time, we can't dismiss that that stuff ever happens. You know, I don't think, um, I'm definitely a theist and not a deist. I do think God is involved in the world. Uh, at the same time, you know, Simone Weil talks about how there's a randomness to things that God did set things in motion and that he's going to let those things in general carry out. And so what she can make the, 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 the comment about the ocean, the ocean has these beautiful waves and it ebbs and flows and it actually helps life and it feeds us and all these things. But, but because there's this randomness, it's also going to crash some, some ships and people are going to drown. And so if we wanted the ocean to, change itself every time a ship would crash that would take away from its beauty because it is the randomness that makes it beautiful so while i do think god can be involved and is involved in creation tweaking performing miracles here and there i think in general things are just abide in the natural order of things that is the general rule which is why a miracle is the exception you know but i think that order is good Because one of the things with evil, people talk about, why is there so much evil? Well, the reason we can identify evil is because it's the exception. You know, wars are terrible because they're not the rule. You know, generally we live not in times of war. So the, it's not like the random order of things is set up bent towards evil. It's set up bent towards good with occasional evil happening. And it's the same thing that we can't expect those things not to take place or that the natural order of things is bad. So all that to say, you know, when you get into that sort of thing, I I think um, we can have the expectation that God always hears us and he's always going to give us an answer. But sometimes the answer is it's going to take care of itself. I'm just going to let you go through this. So going back to like, you know, personal experience, Um, I did have a supernatural experience. And then the third thing is, uh, and this is what I think people try try to avoid. It is a negative experience. I went through a divorce and it was completely my fault. So sometimes like, why am I suffering so much? Well, maybe you made some really bad decisions and now you're wanting things, you're blaming God for things being different, but you made bad decisions. You know, you, if you murder somebody, do you want God to give you a mistrial? I mean, is that really justice or should you actually just go to jail and for a long time? And so for me, I think putting those categories. So I had church hurt. That was not my fault. And it was thrust upon me. Then there was like an, a mountaintop experience of supernatural intervention. And then there was like hurt that I caused myself. And I did that on purpose because one, they're real. That's true to my life. But then also I think you can generally categorize personal experience in these like really good and either you didn't deserve it or you did deserve it, but it happened bad and you didn't deserve it, which is really hangs up people are bad. And like, Hey, look in the mirror because the villain is you. So I think that that's a general, like those three categories, 
overarchingly comment on almost all personal experience. Wow. Yeah, that's, you know, I, I think, I think often when we, when we talk about wanting to, to fight evil or, you know, to, um, to be about good in the world, we, we, we fail to mention that really the, the first place to start is to look, to look at our own hearts. You know, yeah. that, that, that evil is there, that, that hatred, uh, or whatever, the, or the, the blaming of someone else, uh, for the, they're the problem, right? You know, right. like, okay, well, as soon as you do that, you're actually contributing to the problem, right? Right. Yeah. Wow. That's, that, that, that's really powerful. And I, I look forward to, to continuing to read. It sounds like you're very vulnerable, uh, and your willingness to share openly about, about these things. Uh, does that come easily to you? Um, not terribly, um, but to be real in the book, I'll, I'll tell you the two things that caused me the most hesitation to mention. Um, one of them is really serious. I, I had not talked about openly very much that I was molested as a child by some teenagers in my neighborhood. Mm. And, um, that was pretty hard to talk about. Um, I come from, my dad was a rugby player and a, a gentleman, but obviously with rugby, there's, there's this, um, it, th there was this hurdle I had to get over of somehow, even though I was vulnerable and, and nine at the time, you know, this sort of toughness machismo of like, wait a minute, why didn't I, why didn't I fight them off? Why didn't I, you know, I, I had to overcome my own sort of hang up with like, you know, I was not in a position to be tough and I, and I had to accept that I was in a vulnerable position that I had no choice in. And then the other was sort of a similar hangup. It sort of revealed a hangup that I have because until I was about eight, um, I was a daddy's boy, like just hardcore. I don't know if any of your kids are, but like, I was just, I wanted my dad to carry me everywhere. And of course my dad, like I said, rugby player, he's like six, five, 260, was just bigger than the other dads. And so I always felt safe with him. And so he would carry me and I, he said, I would kind of root into him and almost because I was very introverted and very shy and hide like hide in him so people couldn't see me and so on Winnie the Pooh there's Kanga and her baby is named Rue and so that's the name he called me until I was eight uh, because I was just this daddy's boy who would hide in his father's arms and that for the same it triggered the same thing in me it triggered that reaction to vulnerability of like wait a minute is that manly to talk about like and so I had to overcome those things and I, and I don't, I'm not one that categorizes, I, I think humanity does these weird things. There's been toxic masculinity for years, but in our effort to get rid of that, we're almost getting rid of masculinity period. And masculinity is not evil in itself. We have to discover some sort of balance between John Wayne and just ridding ourselves of masculinity period. And, and, and I don't know how those answers, I, I obviously by these examples, I struggle with it myself. Like, where is that healthy? You know, I think it is a positive thing to my son. There was one time, my young son, uh, we thought somebody was breaking in the house. And my first thing was my wife. She's like, I'm going to go downstairs with you. And I was like, and I don't do this. My wife's a psychologist, very intelligent. I, but I was like, no, go upstairs. You take care of him. I'm going to go figure out what's going on. And I think in that moment for my son to see like part of a positive masculinity is I will take the bullet first for my family. That is a positive masculinity, but I want him to see that 
what I don't want him to see is this sort of lording it over thing, you know, where like I've had to learn over the years, like if my wife and I get in an argument, not that, not that you got, not that you and your wife ever get in arguments, <laughs> she stands up, she stands up, she'll point her finger. I've learned that like I stay sitting down, um, not because I know I'm never going to hurt her. She knows I'm never going to hurt her. But there is something that the moment I stand up, and of course, if people are seeing this, thing, I'm six three. I'm I'm not a I'm not a small guy. When I stand up, there's all of a sudden this physical factor. If I never even take a step toward her, there's a physical factor that I know that women have to always be aware of that that is not fair. And so when we argue, I stay sitting down so that that never becomes a fact. So we're arguing about ideas. I'm not a bully about my ideas. So that's just sort of two examples of like how masculinity, we, we can't throw it all out, but we definitely have to adjust it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Uh, and, and one of the things that is just really coming to me, really throughout this whole conversation, we've, we've, we've been talking about a lot of areas where life is full of like spectrums, right? Like, like masculinity and femininity are almost kind of these two holes, but no one actually exists at either end, right? Like Correct. we all yeah. are a blend of those things. And, and, and I'll, you know, I'll be the first to admit that sometimes I think my wife is way more masculine than me in a sense that she, she's just more willing to take charge. She's, she's often more assertive. I often mm -hmm. tend to like, so I, so I'm a nine on the Enneagram. So oh, I just want everybody to be happy. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm very much a peacemaker, right? So I want yeah. to just, you know, and, and often take a, take a back seat and just kind of, you know, let other people be. Um, and so I've, I've had to learn to be more assertive uh, right. and that it's not being assertive is not being a jerk. You know, it's not, it's not just, you know, being a bully. It's, it's just uh, speaking up, speaking my truth. Right. And, and right. being, being willing to take right action uh, rather than just sitting around waiting for somebody else to, to do it or whatever. Um, so yeah, I, I think when I think about, it, it's not just balance, it's almost like we live in the paradox. Yeah, that's very, uh, very Kierkegaard in that. And he talked about that a lot. The, and, and modern society doesn't deal with paradox very well. You have like modernity, the modern philosophy is like, humans will eventually figure it all out. And then we sort of started to discover, I don't know that we are, well, then you have the postmodern movements like, well, then nothing is true. <laughs> and I tend to be in the middle of like, well, wait a minute. If you and I see a blue sky and what blue looks like to my eyes very well and most likely looks slightly different than what blue looks like to your eyes. But we're at least talking about something similar enough that when you say, look, the blue sky, I know what you're talking about, right? So there is at least enough of an objective reality that we can agree upon certain things. And so I sort of take the phenomenology approach that I'm a subjective self, but we live in an objective world. And so we're all these little subjective selves that have our own experience of things, but we're experiencing a real world. And therefore there is a commonality. And to me, that's a much more robust view of things. The other two are kind of ditches that what humans experience is exactly what reality is and it's exactly real. And therefore we're gonna figure it out and we're all gonna eventually agree or nothing is real and language isn't real. And it's like, wait, it, it feels like to me that maybe the both are going on at the same time. And so I think the learning of that is really important as well is that you know you can't like, when people talk about like, 
you said speaking my truth. Well, you have the modernist side, like there is no your truth. There's just the truth or not the truth. And then the postmodern going, there is no truth. <laughs> and you're going, okay, wait a minute. Like, and that's why I go through the whole thing of truth. There's subjective truth. There's intersubjective truth. There's objective truth. There's transcendent truth. And it's all kind of in there together. And for um, people to really understand those terms, they'll have to read your book, right? That's, that's true. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's good. It's good. I, I, I obviously won't be able to cover every single thing in the book. But um, yeah, and, and one of the things that I think about a lot, and this might be a kind of a, a stoic understanding of the reality, but there's like, there, there's, there's truth or there's, there's reality, but then there's the, our perspective on reality. And we can all have, I mean, it's almost like, every person has their own unique perspective on what is, but does that actually change what is true? And actually, no, it doesn't. It doesn't change what's true, but what it does change is the lived experience. Right. Right. Like my wife and I could be going through the exact same thing and feel totally opposite about it. You know? Yeah. Like for example, theme parks, I could take or leave them. Right. Like I, I would be just as happy just hanging out on the couch um you know or, or like the you know me and the kids like they they are maybe having the time of their life and i'm just like okay this is this is nice but uh you know it, it's all about perspective um, right and so well how many times have your wife like my wife and i have been in a discussion and just our interpretation of a situation is completely different i'm like wait i i know that i don't think either of us are clinically insane so <laughs> So it, it's weird, though, when you start to talk, it's like, no, from my perspective, this is how that happened. Mm -hmm. And the reality is we're probably neither exactly correct. And I, one of the things that people talk about scripturally is like the accounts of the empty tomb. Well, they're different. So that's like, wait a minute. Like if you and I right now started to write down the recollection that we had of the night we met, it's going to be different. We might get all the same events. They might be in a different order. We might say, no, there were two reporters there. Nope, there was one. But we're telling the truth about the event. And there's a lot of truth in there. It's just perspective. And so do, do either of ours exactly match up with the objective reality? Probably not. But we're, we're at least talking about the same situation enough to you can know, you can trust the fact that, okay, they're, they're talking about a real thing that really happened, you know, so. Yeah, I'm almost to the point now where I'm like surprised when people do agree on something <laughs> like 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 the other day you know i was just um asking the the family what they saw when they looked at the clouds right like you know, how clouds can make different shapes and things and what was yeah. i think the most shocking to me is when we when someone said oh it looks like an elephant and we all were like you're right it does look like an elephant <laughs> you know it's almost like i expected everyone to say no it doesn't you know that that's obviously a, a horse or that's obviously right you know, a car. Um, when I think that even comes into the play, like it's really interesting. I, my oldest sons are identical twins. And so if material naturalism is right, they are the same person mm. because naturally they are. But so there, that's part of the reason I reject that, that the self is due to consciousness or it's due to biology. I think the self is a supernatural metaphysical reality. Otherwise, every time you go to sleep, you're not you because you're not conscious. <laughs> so, uh, or if you're going to coma, you're not you or under anesthetic anesthesia. I mean, so I think it's that, but the interesting thing is my sons are clearly two different people. 
even though they're genetically the same. And people say, well, different experiences, pretty similar experiences. I mean, they grew up in the same household with the same parents. And, and so obviously not exactly the same, but pretty similar. And the fact that identical twins can be so different and their perspectives be so different to me is a massive piece of evidence that the self, which I use synonymously with the soul, is a metaphysical reality. It's beyond nature. Yeah, that that word soul is what I just kept thinking of the whole time you were you're talking about it because that 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 is such an it's such an elusive uh, idea that we can't quite figure out what that is. But at the same time, when we say soul, we kind of all know what we mean. Like it's like right. the deepest personhood, the essence of of us, and who you really are. Yeah, who you really are, and. And having kids is probably the, the best experience to, to see that. Like every single one of my kids are just so, they're just so different. They're just so unique. Um, and it's not, yeah, you're right. It's not that we've nurtured them differently. Uh, right. Maybe there is some of that with birth order and, and, and that sort of thing. But at the same time, like they just are very much themselves. Uh, and right. it really is kind of a beautiful thing. And, and it's a beautiful thing to remember that about yourself, right? About that I, I am a unique phenomenon in the universe. And so the questions I have, the, the journey that I'm on, like, that's just, that's mine to, to take. And we can, we can approach that with some, with curiosity, with openness, um, with doubt, but also mm -hmm. with, with faith uh, and not being afraid to, to doubt those things and not be afraid of, of indoctrination, but possibly... Right learning about from others. How, how are you indoctrinated and how, right. what do I think about that? And, and yeah, I think we, we really need to return to an open conversation with people that we disagree with. And it's really sad and, and each sort of side of the spectrum likes to blame the other. Well, those people are the problem. It's like, no, actually you're both the problem <laughs> because we should be able to disagree and you know, I, Thomas Aquinas says we should show respect to those who disagree with us because they have worked really hard to search for the truth as well. He didn't say they're right. They should, they at least deserve our respect because they've probably worked really hard to come to their conclusions as well. I like that. That's a, that's a, a great place to, to start to wrap it up. Was it, is there anything else coming up uh, for you? Are you kind of, planning on doing any more writing, uh, more music coming out, anything you want to share? Well, right now we've put out four albums in the last year and a half. What? And yeah, we, so we did like a covers record in 2020. So 2020, so two years, excuse me, two years. Pieces 2020 came out right before the pandemic, week before the pandemic. Wow. Uh, and then we put out a covers record and a Christmas record in 2021. And then we came out with one last thing. So in the past 24 months, we put out four records. And then I came out with the philosophy book, which the publicity campaign for that starting today. And so we are, we're just in promo mode. Like we're, we got two European tours next year. Uh, we're going to do an armed forces tour next year, which we've, we've done that in the past. And it's just, I'm going to be going around speaking, teaching, playing. So we're not really creating anything new because right now that would seem a little irresponsible. We need to sort of promote what we've already created. Um, but we're definitely going to be ripping and be as busy as possible. And I would love to come in and speak to any churches or universities and about this stuff. Um, so cool. Yeah. So how can people get in touch with you if they want to hear, hear more? 
Yeah, just jasonleemckinneyband.com, and the, there's a page on the website that has the book, and so they can check out our music, which the music is an integral part of the book as well, um, as you know, so there's QR codes you can take, so try to be somewhat entertaining, but yeah, jasonleemckinneyband.com. Cool. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm just really grateful for, for your time. Um, the, the book has really given me a lot to, to think about, and I, I think I really appreciate I love how personal it is and how somehow the personal is, is also universal. It's almost mm. like the more personal you share, the more other people can, okay, yeah, I've felt that before, or I understand that feeling. Um, right. So yeah. I just, I, it's great work. Um, also just full of great sources of philosophy. If people wanted to dive into Descartes and Kierkegaard and all those people that you've uh, been talking about, um, it brings me back because I, that is one of the things I studied in my, in undergrad Oh, good. this philosophy. So it's, it's been, it's rekindled a little bit of my interest to, to go back and study the classics. It's amazing how, uh, some of these thoughts have been around for so long. You don't, you don't yeah. realize, um, it makes you wonder sometimes, well, is there anything new under the sun? Right. <laughs> right. Well, and I'll say this, like we often assume that we're so much smarter than people of in antiquity. And I don't think that's true. We're more technologically advanced, but I'm not sure we're any smarter. Right. And they, they had different uh, hurdles, right? Like yeah. we, we have a little bit more free speech these days. We're not worried about losing our life because uh, we say something that, that the church might see as heretical. Right. And that's, that's a gift, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, again, thank you so much for, uh, for your time and, and yeah, best of luck and wishes for, for the future and we'll, we'll all be uh, excited to, to listen more to, to your music, read your book and, and yeah, we'll, we'll be appreciate it, man. Yeah. Yeah. again, I'm so grateful that I got a chance to sit down with Jason. And again, that's jasonleemckinneyband.com. I will make sure to put links to his website in the description notes, as well as links to where you can get his book so that you can uh, read it all for yourself and to continue to ask a lot of these questions. Be willing to have a healthy dose of doubt in your life so that you can stay curious and open to learning more and more uh, by the new things of today, as well as learning from the classic old um, thinkers. These old philosophers still have so much to teach us, and people like Jason also have a lot to teach us. And so I'm grateful. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.